Hey, we're back with another episode of uh, the Utility Strategy Podcast. And today we have with us uh, Colleen Martindale from McCarthy, a combination of a heavy metal and heavy civil. And I think we're going to learn a lot today on the complexities of subsurface utilities in complex projects. And with that, Colleen, tell us about yourself. How are you doing today? Hey, David, thank you. I'm great. I feel like I need to explain the heavy metal, heavy civil thing. Yeah, um, I kind of threw it up there so we can, uh, yeah. Yeah, the reference there, I was a professional musician in a past life. I do have or have had a, a heavy metal band, kind of 80s rock hair band kind of thing. I'm a lifelong guitar player, studied music in college before I went into engineering. I guess I have a little bit of heavy metal and heavy civil in my background. I grew up in El Paso, Texas. I studied at the University of Texas at El Paso. I came away with a degree in civil engineering, like I said, after I'd studied music. I ended up in construction kind of by accident. I was certainly pursuing a, a design degree. And then I met someone from McCarthy at a career fair and serendipitously ended up with- During your degree, you met someone at McCarthy. Yeah, they were recruiting UTEP. And so I said, okay, let's give it a shot. I didn't, didn't have any preconceived ideas. I, I'm, I've always been very willing to try what happens and see how that goes. So I did two internships with McCarthy, one in San Antonio and one in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I loved it. So when the time came upon graduation to figure out what I wanted to do, I had an offer from McCarthy. I came in full-time in 2009 and they, they didn't have a spot out in the field for me. So they hang out in the pre-con department for a little while or estimating as we called it at the time. And I decided I enjoyed that too. It offered some stability that I appreciated. I was able to plant some roots here in, in DFW. So I've been, been here since 2009. Pre-con worked out great for me. I get to see a lot of projects in a pretty quick succession rather than necessarily getting pigeonholed on one thing for two or three years. I would say it's the most interesting part of the project. I think it is. And it's, I'm a little competitive as most of my coworkers are. And so my job is competing to win work. So I enjoy that. I have a great team here. I actually left McCarthy for a short while and came back, learned that this was probably where home was going to be for me. And I'm really glad that happened the way that it did. And since then, I moved up in the organization, manager, director, senior director. And so now I am leading our civil pre-con team. Our civil business um, recently just became its own business unit. So we have a dedicated focus on the heavy civil markets. And for us, what that means is transportation, roads, bridges, rail, site work on commercial projects. And we also do some of the site work and grading and utilities on water wastewater projects and on some of our large renewable solar projects. So I get to touch a lot of different markets. We're part of our Southern, Southern region, which covers all of Texas, where we tend to do most of our work, but we also have an office in Atlanta. So we have the potential to be working out in that market as well. We have the capacity to do it so far. Texas keeps us pretty busy. The market right now is in a really great place. I think the opportunities are excellent. I'm really excited. There's a bill coming down the chain as well. Yeah, there's oh, going to yeah. be a lot of work. Tons of infrastructure funding and Dallas-Fort Worth contains a, a handful of the nation's fastest growing cities. And so with that population just continuing to boom here and in other cities in Texas as well, there is plenty of infrastructure work to do. So we stay plenty busy and it's a good place to be, particularly when you're riding out a recession or when other markets are, are turning down. Civil's been a good place for us. Yeah. Colleen, tell me, I read a bit about the work that you're doing around promoting women professionals in the industry. Can you tell me a bit about your uh, partnership program at McCarthy? 
Sure. Something that I didn't pay a lot of attention to when I was younger, newer in the industry, what the group looked like. Now I can look back 15 years and realize there weren't very many women around and there certainly wasn't anybody higher up in the organization for me to look up to. And as silly as it sometimes sounds to say, it's figuring out how, what your leadership style is and the way that you speak and the way that you dress. And if you don't have somebody to model after, you're trying to emulate what's already there. And so that was a lot of trying to act like a guy. And I don't think that's necessary. And that it's just a small barrier that I didn't even notice at the time. When I came back to McCarthy, as I mentioned the second time, I had an opportunity kind of land in my lap. That's been my, my whole life. They never land. It's always a combination of hard work and... <laughs> A bit of timing, maybe yeah, timing. Yeah. There's been some luck. But yeah. there was an article that I was asked to write, else had been offered it, wasn't able to, so I wrote it. But it was about what it's like to be a woman in construction. And that article was one of DCEO's top read articles online of the year, and it was published in December. So it overtook a lot of earlier written articles in the year. That started all of this for me. I started, people were asking at the same time, the McCarthy Partnership for Women Infancy. It started out on the West Coast with a group of ladies across companies that formed a group called Women in Operations or WIOPS. And then it worked its way eastward and we formed a national committee for the group in 2017. And so what we do, we had at the time kind of five main priorities. So it was personal and professional development, networking, internal and external networking, communication and awareness, recruiting and out. And the reason that we decided it was important was we have a labor shortage and you cannot go anywhere without hearing about that. There is no yeah. company. One challenge of the industry. Huge in all levels, management and in the trades. And with women making up 51% of the population and close to 50% of the workplace in general, ignoring half a potential workforce is a great way to make sure you continue to have a labor shortage. So we thought that was a place we could make an immediate impact. There are obviously other underrepresented groups that we found other ways to work with since then, but we started with women. And so McCarthy Partnership for What women, are the numbers today in the industry? Can you... Yeah, the studies vary a little bit, but generally women in engineering, architecture, and construction tend to be around 10%. And wow. the majority of those roles are administrative. So when you look at women in the trades, it's two to three percent. Women in management or technical roles is about the same. A big place where we can improve, we can bring more people in. But the challenge is making the industry and your company a place that the best talent wants to come to. So we have to evolve. Looking at more family-friendly benefits, making sure that barriers are removed, that people have career paths that were supportive. The industry obviously is pretty well known for long hours. So how can we lean on each other to better support each other when somebody has some Something with their kid or they're taking care of a parent or they're managing their duties at home. How do we balance that? And, and I say balance, there, maybe there's not always a balance, but figuring out what it is that, that works for each person, each individual and how they can be successful. So that's a big part. One of the coolest things that we've done with the Partnership for Women is some events that are helping to create access and comfort for our female partners. We found that some of our women were either not being invited or were being invited and didn't feel comfortable accepting an invitation to events like golf outings, clay shooting, fishing trips are big clients because they didn't know the etiquette, they didn't know how to play. So what we've done is create a series of primers in all of our different businesses where some of our male partners would come and teach, show us the etiquette, show us what to wear, show us how to play. 
And that way people are more empowered to participate. And that's, that, that's men and women just making sure because some of those events are where really important relationships are built, business deals are forged. And in order to succeed, we can't be missing out on those opportunities. So it's created a really neat way to get people a little more engaged. Something else that we've been doing is some external networking events with key clients, high-powered female executives, just creating exposure. We've had a lot of formal mentoring relationships form out of that have been ongoing yep. past the event, which is great. And then we're also just looking for opportunities to educate our male partners about how to be a better ally, a better advocate. And that benefits everybody, not just our female partners. Just if you're in a room, consider bringing someone along. You're meeting with a great client, bring somebody a little more junior and make an introduction. That way we're building the next generation of leaders. Yeah, I think there's also on a practical sense, it's we're talking about 50%, 51% of the workforce, right? And so we're missing in the industry, uh, what is it? 40, 40 plus minus percent. Right. And that's exactly the, that's the answer to all the questions to what's happening in the industry at the moment. It certainly helps, particularly in, in collaborative delivery methods. Women are great. They bring some traits, just broad brush here, but some natural traits and leadership qualities that are really beneficial to the teams that just having that different perspective, the more diversity you can have on your team, the more ideas, different worldviews you're going to get, you're going to get a better product. And there are countless studies that show that companies with the top diversity numbers have better financial results. And we're a firm believer in that. Yeah, and also there's saw a lecture by one of, one of the, one of the investors on the, on Shark Tank said that his, his women's side of the portfolio performs much better than the male side because of the way that they take risks. So connecting this into our conversation on how women handle risks, it is better than the way men handle risks. But yeah, just a side note. Yeah, I'll have to look that one up. Yeah, I'll send you a link afterwards. I'll put one in the comments for our audience. So let's uh, let's talk a bit about, about what we came here to talk about. So one of the things that I think is most difficult for many of the stakeholders that are involved in heavy civil infrastructure projects is how do we quantify the risk of subsurface utilities? Like how does that get put into pricing? Because there's just so many unknowns. Yeah, depending on the project, the amount of information and the quality of the information that that you're provided to, to price the project varies quite wildly. For us, I think what we're really looking at, aside from the obvious linear footages of pipe, what appurtenances you're going to need, valves, etc. We're really interested in depth, in geotech, understanding what it's going to take to actually install that. Rock can be a big factor here in Texas, or the types of soils, whether you've got stuff that's expansive, where your water table is at, all of that plays into the type of bedding and some of your construction methods that you're going to need. Something more recently that's been a big factor for us is material lead times and escalations. The continuing unwinding effects of pandemic we see all the time. Any delays in manufacturing, shipping, that's all still affecting us, particularly big precast, big valves, 
stuff like that has extraordinarily long lead times. If it's something off the shelf, it's not too bad. Smaller diameter pipe, smaller culvert. PVC has had a lot of escalations. So making sure that we price that risk is really important. We have to have a lot of communication with our vendors and subcontractors if it's not something that we're self-performing to make sure we understand what our ability to get those materials on site is going to be. We had a project in the city of Fort Worth that got the a double whammy. It was the impacts of COVID. And then we had a very severe winter storm in 2020 and in 2021 in about the February timeframe here in Texas that really impacted us. And so one of the cool things, and I'll talk about alternative delivery more later, but this was a CM at risk project. McCarthy was the construction manager. We had a what looked like on paper, a very simple, straightforward road reconstruction project with drainage and waterline work included. But after COVID and that storm, some of the large box culverts on that project were 12 to 16 weeks out, which didn't jive real well with the schedule that we had developed. We also had the constraint that a major waterline tie-in on one end of the job had to happen during low flow periods, which, you know, over the winter. So there was a a limited window when that could be installed. So if we had to resequence the culvert, that might likely affect the sequencing of the water line. And then that would be a whole nother year before we could tie that in. The beauty of the CMAR process is that we were able to resequence the job. We ended up breaking that thing into eight different phases. It was complicated, but it worked. So we were able to go do the water line first get that paved, get done, move out of that area. And it allowed us time to wait for those culverts to come in without extending the schedule for the owner, which that was the biggest thing for them was getting in and out of there because this project is an area that is developing rapidly. It's got residential, multifamily, business, industrial, every every kind of type there. Impacting their lives as little as possible or for the least amount of time as possible was really important to that client. That's worked out really great for us being able to do that and mitigate those impacts. And in retrospect, when you look at the things that happened throughout the projects, are you able to say we should have seen that coming or we should have been prepared or there was just no way to know? What are the... Yeah, 2020 hindsight, for sure. We were monitoring all of those things, and that was a constantly evolving situation. We won this project very early 2020, so we didn't know COVID was a thing when this thing started. And so then we really didn't get, it delayed our whole pre-construction process. So we were able to monitor that, that constantly changing situation, and we react as best that we could. I think if we had been in a traditional design bid build scenario, our ability to react would have been very, something else on that project that that just continued to complicate things were franchise utility owners in the area that, hey, we're going to be relocated by X date. That didn't happen. And then sometimes when those things were relocated, they were not put where they were supposed to, or they continued to be in conflict. So we were able to do a lot of on-the-spot changes in, in reaction fairly quickly, changing conditions. So like I said, market conditions were one thing actual project conditions and existing utilities were another. Just our ability to react to those, I think was good. And there were certainly lessons learned that we're going to carry forward on on to every next project. Were the utility owners up for playing ball, so to speak? Like with the difficult (laughs) collaboration or an easy collaboration? Yes and no. So (laughs) McCarthy initially, it was not part of our scope to manage them. That fell under the responsibility of our design partners. And when they were running into some timeliness, it was escalated. 
escalated through some of the city channels. In an alternative delivery environment, that can be part of the construction manager or design builder's scope. We like to get our fingers in that. I think it helps us communicate, coordinate a little bit better. Some of the some of these agencies are easier to deal with others. Sometimes it depends on who you're talking to. Sometimes it's just the agency and they move at the speed that they do and you don't have a lot of control over that. Sometimes um, it's a 90 days response and sometimes right. someone in the, in the department. Yeah. And we, we just have to deal with that as it comes. And so our ability to control the schedule and resequence when we need to and establishing those relationships is another reason why we don't mind doing that. It allows us to try to move those things along and we can give it the full attention because it's obviously in our benefit to be able to manage those effectively. We're very... We hear that a lot, that the relationship with the utility owners and with the agencies are the difference between a project that runs on schedule and between a project that does not. Oh, absolutely. It's, they have the potential to be a huge impact positively or negatively. Yeah, we. I think that's maybe a good segue into some of our other capabilities. McCarthy has an in-house mapping company, McCarthy Mapping, where we can do Sioux investigations, get up to quality level A. They can do a lot of, employ a lot of technology to actually physically verify where all of those utilities are. And so we've employed them in our civil projects to come out and help us validate where stuff actually is. Because another piece, and I think you guys recognize this, is that the quality of the as-built is sometimes questionable. Sometimes. We, I say this to, I think, nearly every guest that we have. They're more like as-ifs or as-maybes, <laughs> not as-built. Yeah. So being able to go out there and physically verify that, it, early is important. And sometimes you can't go verify, get your eyeballs on a particular pipe until you've peeled a street back or dug a big trench. But bringing our mapping folks in when we can has been really helpful to us. We have another CM at risk project north of the Metroplex here where we've as we've gone through the pre-construction process, so we had nine-ish months of design and pre. We brought our mapping team in early, and the reason that was really advantageous, that scope was actually part of our engineer of records, but the sub-consultants that they use are just extraordinarily busy, and so it was going to be six weeks before they could get out and check wow. something we needed to advance the design. We had built an alternate into our contract that if, if it was necessary to bring us out, we had some budget built in for McCarthy's mapping team to go out and do some utility verification. So in that case, we sent them out. There was a line running under a railroad track and we just needed to verify where it actually crossed. So we sent mapping out there. Um, they found that and we didn't have any delays in the design. That could have pushed us back another four to six weeks. Do you think that more engineers in general, more firms don't do that. Don't invest in the mapping element early in the project. Like a lot of times we see that this only happens like right before construction and just doesn't make sense. The design is already there. All the important decisions have already been made. And now surprise, I think there, there could be multitude of reasons for that. One could be if I check it a year, a year ahead, then some, something changes. There's other work going on in the area. Now everything's in a different spot. I'm going to have to do it again. But I think it's really important to advise the design to know where stuff is and know what's going to be in your way. And you can plan around conflicts because it only gets more expensive the closer or into construction you get. I think the firms are busy. The consultants that do it have more work than they can keep up with. I think it's a great place to start a business. Um, 
Yeah, it's I, it's critical on civil work. That that stuff is in the way. If you're changing paving grades, you're going to affect your utilities. If you're doing any drainage work or any slope stabilization, understanding where the water is moving, understanding the existing utilities, water, sanitary, the dry utilities. What another one for us that's big has been overhead. It affects a couple of things. One, permanent location. If it's in the way of a sidewalk or your pavement, that can cause delays while you wait on a franchise to move them. The other piece is constructability. If we've got a ton of overhead power lines and we're moving equipment around, that, that's a safety risk. Yep. Not to mention that any kind of a strike disrupts life for the people living around there, whether that's utility or you knock somebody's internet down and you're going to get a phone call pretty quick. The other thing is, can we access a particular area of the site underneath power lines, if there's any structures going in. One of my very early projects when I was an intern, we had major utility delays on that thing. It was a 128 span rail and they there were overhead power lines crossing at three or four different locations that didn't get moved. And so we had to stop construction of the bridge. It, you'd have five or six spans and then a big gap and then you keep going. And so wow. that caused a lot of delays for that project. Ridiculous. Not cheap. And it's all just utilities in the way that weren't either coordinated properly or just couldn't get out of the way in time. That affected our, our subcontractors. There were underground utilities that were in the way too. So you hit one of those with a drill shaft rig, that's pretty dangerous. If things are not in the place that you expect them to be, it's it just causes compounding problems. Costs. What's interesting about the about the overhead element is that when we look when we look at the as builts that come through us, so a lot of times overhead isn't even on the as builts. And it's funny because the, the biggest risk, what the industry likes to say is the biggest risk is subsurface, right? Because we can't see it. But the overhead only when you're there, boots on the ground. Like, like when does that happen in the process? So you start design sometimes a year, two, three years before the project starts, mm -hmm. right? And you don't always go out into the field when it's that early in the process. So yeah, you start that's, making that's plans. Any, anything that we're chasing or pursuing here, we send somebody to go eyes on the ground, it, whether I would, I, I prefer to do it myself. So I know what's there and I get a good feel for it. And the estimating team, or we'll send somebody out from nearby project site to at least get pictures for us. Cause you, you can't go in blind with that. We're also looking for other markers for subsurface utilities, any clues that we can, we can get ahead of time, especially on a hardwood project where the information you have is what you have, but we want to make some constructability decisions and some strategy decisions around things that we think could go or poorly on the project. So getting eyeballs on site, boots on the ground is critical. Do you, uh, when you take on a project, would you verify the data that you get, the utility data that you get from the owner or from the other stakeholders that are, that are in yeah. the coordination? We try to, it, it kind of depends on the type of project and the timeline, but sometimes you get a quick fire, a hard bid project, a pursuit, and you might have three weeks to get it done. And we'll go out, walk the site and just try to understand what's there. Obviously you don't have enough time to really do a full thorough exploration at that point. We usually budget some money to do that, that we're going to, that's just part of our best practices that when we get out on site, we're going to bring our utilities folks, our mapping people out to do a physical verification before we break ground. Sad, but not, not everyone does that. No, it, but I think it, it's important and it pays for itself in the long run because an accident or a strike could be very costly in addition to dangerous and that's not a risk we 
want. We want to try to remove all of that as best we can. Are we always going to be the low bidder? No, probably not, which is why we prefer these collaborative delivery approaches, whether see them at risk or design build, where we can go out early, walk with the engineer, bring our mapping folks in early, help validate some of that stuff. We're exploring using the forum tool, which I think is a really neat thing that helps us a lot on the pre-construction side to at least get a better idea with all of that data, because sometimes it's just not provided to you. So you've got to make the best decisions you can. I guess I'm in pre-con, I'm a little bit in the business of doom and gloom. Let me think through what is the worst case scenario, what could go wrong so that I can at least think through that and determine how we want to price that risk because it exists. You're not going to win any work if you price everything 100% doom and gloom, but there's a balance there to understanding. Is there a scenario where, where you would say, no, the risk here is too high? Like we, yeah. we can't, we don't want to take this on. Like Absolutely. did that happen? Yeah, it's happened a number of times. We're fairly conservative with our risk profile and civil is high risk in general when you're dealing with utilities in particular. One thing that's really important to us is to look at contract terms around that stuff and making sure that we're protected in the event that information was incorrect or that there's unknown conditions. A lot of times it's the contract language that will get us to pull out on a project. And typically when that happens, we try to reach out to the owner and let them know, hey, we're really interested in this project. Here's our concerns. If we can work through that, we certainly try to. But yeah, there there are occasions where that can be a deal breaker. There's I, Going back to overhead, you look at some structures that need to be built. And if you can't get underneath those lines with a low clearance drill rig, or you've got a high voltage line and there's no provision to be able to de-energize that to be able to work nearby. Those are safety conditions we don't want to deal with. There's multiple things that go into that decision, but at the end of the day, we want to have a safe, profitable, enjoyable, collaborative project. We want to deliver something to that client and to that community that is going to be successful. And if we're going to put people's lives at risk, that to me is not something that we want to want to get our fingers into. I think that it's a maturity of an organization because a lot of organizations say safety first, but at the end of the day, when what's the phrase, when push comes to shove, yeah. safety isn't first, right? Yeah, that is that is truly something we, we live and breathe here. Every single meeting that we do begins with a safety moment, even in the office. We, we want to if we go out and we visit a job site, an active project, we'll do a task hazard analysis with the crew that we're observing. And that way they're aware of our presence there as well. We've got, there was a quote, one of our leaders would say, you know, this every day this job site is trying to kill you. And it's true. So you need to be looking for all of those opportunities to, to keep yourself safe, keep your partner safe, make sure that everybody goes home in the same condition they came in. Complacency is a big enemy of safety. Just you're doing something repetitive or you're doing, going to the same place every day and you just take you just your Just get used to the risks. So in pre-con, part of our job function is to evaluate the risks on the project and safety is one of those. I've talked, I talked to, who was it? I think it's another civil engineer in a different company that was saying that it like it, the only way to really care about safety is you connect it if you connect it to the bottom line. And I think that we're going to see, especially with the, with the labor shortage and margins getting thinner and thinner, that's going to become part of the bottom line. A lot of our clients are also, again, w when you're in a hard bid situation, picking you just on price, but 
when we have competitive sealed proposal requests for qualifications, a lot of them are asking for your safety data. And that, that's a place where McCarthy really stands out. You've got best in class safety. And I think that helps us win projects. You I mean, owners don't want a safety incident. They don't want to be in the news, not for that. So it, seeing that our clients value that is, is really important. We're not trying to work with everybody. We want to have partnerships. We want to have mutual respect and great projects. And, and so clients that value safety and collaboration, those are the folks we want to work with as well. And we want to show new clients, hey, this th there is a better way to do this. It doesn't have to be just a knuckle-dragging fight to the end. We can be partners here, and that that's good for everybody. Yeah. Colleen, I know we normally end the podcast with, with two questions. One is a question which I think the audience would, would be interested in. And the first question, one piece of advice for women engineers, women professionals going into the industry. I think my favorite advice that I like to give is that it is absolutely okay to be your authentic self at work. Bringing the things that are different about you, bringing your personality, your empathetic nature, all of that contributes really great things to the workplace. Again, that diverse representation drives better business outcomes is a real thing. Trying to act like the people that are already there isn't necessarily going to do it for you. And again, being a little bit different, standing out for whatever reason you do, if you're good at what you do, you're going to get noticed. So take advantage of that. Be yourself. You'll form more genuine relationships. You'll bond with people. Be authentic. It's great opportunity. Yeah. Second question, who should we have on next? I actually have a great recommendation for you. I think you would have a fascinating conversation with my friend Liz Hahn. She leads our mapping group here in our southern region. She's located in Austin. She can talk much more intelligently about all of their really cool technology than I can. Hopefully show you some pictures and examples of stuff that they've done, but they have been a, a really great asset for my team. I think your listeners would appreciate her perspective. Yeah, we've heard <laughs> yeah, she's been me. I introduced her to some of your folks over the last couple of weeks, and they've, I'm really excited to see them continuing that conversation. Yeah, yeah. The team is, was really excited to have a conversation with her. Good. So, Colleen, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, and hopefully, well, we've overcome the storms. So, we've got a full episode that we're going to put together. And uh, thanks for being on here, and hopefully, there'll be a second time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity.